I just love being outside. There's so many things to do this time of the year. I don't want to spend a lot of time cooking. And that's why I love Factors. No prep, no mess meals. Head to Factormeals.com slash Bands50 and use the code Bands50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code Bands50 at Factormeals.com slash Bands50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. These podcasts drop every Thursday like clockwork. And this particular Thursday is special because I'm also appearing in an HBO documentary series, which airs tonight. Uh, It airs this very day, the last Thursday in September of 2021. The documentary series is called The Way Down, W-A-Y-D-O-W-N, The Way Down. And it's about a... uh, ministry, cult, if you want to call it that, uh, in the Nashville, Tennessee area, run by a woman named Gwen Shamblin. And the way I got a part of this is through my investigative reporting history in the realm of religion, particularly money and religion. And the person who invited me to be part of her documentary is named Marina Zinovich. And Marina Zinovich is a two-time enemy winner. And when I was out in California way back in December of last year recording the interview, I insisted that Marina talk to me. So if you want to hear our conversation, it is episode 53. It was the first one of 2021 on January the 7th. And the title of that is Marina Films Documentaries. And she is wonderful. She is amazing. And we've stayed in touch, and she'll text me back and forth, and she's been working like a mad woman to get this uh, on the air. And, I mean, it's harder than doing just straight-up films, I think, is to do this three-part series. And then HBO already ordered a follow-up for the first quarter of 2022. So doubt I'll be in that part, but I'm in the first like part or two of that. And I made the trailer in this thing. So The Way Down, HBO, HBO Max, you know, get your roommate's passcode or whatever, your sister's passcode. The Way Down, it's called God, Greed, and the Cult of Gwen Shamblin. That is on HBO tonight. For me, it was more about how do I not crumble? How do, how do I not break? How can I be true to this voice that's in my head that's telling me I, I need to use everything that I've learned to promote kindness and, and conversation and, and not promote fear? What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening, a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man Listening, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hi there, and welcome to Man Listening. I'm Stuart Watson. I've been trying to get Beth Troutman to sit down and talk to me for, I know it's been years. Uh, We had lunch in Davidson, which is near where she lives, and uh, then I didn't hear from her, and then I saw her at performance at the Blumenthal, and I texted her, and she said yes, and so this is great. We're sitting outside behind Summit Coffee in Davidson, so you'll hear all the background noises. Beth Troutman, Uh, went straight from UNC Chapel Hill to work for the West Wing. No, not the White House, the West Wing, the NBC television program that just racked up more Emmys than you can say grace over. And uh, we talk about that, and that inspired her real-life run for Congress. 
against a man named Robin Hayes, where she got beat, and then Robin Hayes eventually got a federal criminal charge, a, a felony, um, having to do with corruption, and we talk about all that. And she and I work for the same TV station, although at different times. So we talk a lot about life. We talk a lot about her mother, her cancer battle, all the life lessons she learned from it. This was such a privilege. Thank you, Beth Troutman. Where were you born? I was born right down the street. I was born at Cabarrus Memorial Hospital, which is now, I guess, Atrium Northeast in Concord, North Carolina. I am the second child of three, the only girl. So I'm a middle child. I have a brother four years older and a brother four years younger. Our names are Brandon, Beth, and Bill. My cousins are Blaine, Blair, Brittany, and Blake. And my nephews are Braylon and Baylor. <laughs> and we all lived in houses that my grandfather built on the same street where I grew up. When you say he built them, did he build them with his own hands? Yeah, well, he had a, a building company. Uh, he was a, a self-made man who actually dropped out of high school, uh, but created his own business, starting with an automobile dealership, and then he started buying property. And then one night, he got a phone call from a friend that said, well, you know, I'm, I'm buying some land from you. Could you build a house on it for me? And my grandfather said yes. He had no idea what he was doing and just uh, hired in people and started um, building homes. And then everybody, we lived on Burridge Road and my grandfather built his home there. And then my aunt and uncle moved in and then my aunt and uncle and then my other aunt and uncle and my other aunt and uncle. And then we were on the very... So it's like the end. Kennedy compound. <laughs> yeah, except not nearly as classy. <laughs> this is the redneck Kennedys. <laughs> yes. this is, these are the Concord. The Concord Kennedys. These are not the Concord. Yeah, Concord. Concord. <laughs> Was there a NASCAR Speedway when you were a little girl? I definitely remember there being one when I was in high school because we used to get in the traffic, you know, because there wasn't a, an exit. There wasn't, a, there, no Bruton Smith Boulevard existed. No People, Speedway, no. No, you went down 29 and so everybody had to get to 85 going through Concord. So if we were out and about in the, during high school, we had to pay attention to when the, the race traffic would get out because we knew we'd miss our curfew if we got caught in the traffic. So we were, we were always aware of it. Was it there when I was a teeny tiny girl? Probably, because I feel like I remember my church doing a fundraiser of some kind where we rode our bikes around the track. And if you got certain numbers of laps, you were raising money for, I can't remember what, but I think I had training wheels on my bike. So I must have been, you know, four. Were you a NASCAR fan at all? Well, you kind of had to be in in, uh, in my family. My dad actually raced stock cars at the Concord Motor Speedway. Um, was it in the same spot or was no, it? No, it was kind of out near Midland. So my dad was all into that. And he, I mean, Dale Earnhardt Jr. I think raced stock cars when my dad did. It was kind of crazy. He, he, I think he was going through a midlife crisis. <laughs> oh, so your father was a good bit older than Dale Jr. Yeah, oh, a good bit older for sure. Um, like another just, generation. Yeah. He just got into it for fun. So I, we kind of had to be NASCAR fans. I actually sang the national anthem at a NASCAR race in, it would have been 1997. Most nervous I've ever been in my life. That's like more than 100,000 people. Yeah. And how'd you handle the echo? I didn't, I don't think, and I had, I wrote all of the lyrics on my hand because I was just knew I was gonna be one of those people who just forgot the national anthem as soon as I saw the crowd. And I pulled into, you know, the infield in 
and I could see the crowd and I, my, I could barely stand on my knees. But luckily when you go out to sing, you stand on the track. So I really could only see the section that was right in front of me. And so I just paid attention to them and like that was it. And then the echo was very distracting because I didn't have earphones or any kind of anything in my, to block the sound, in my ears to block the sound. So it was the Coca-Cola 600 and it was the IROC race. Do you remember those? That oh, they sure. Had, like, I mean, there's nothing like it. It's spectacle. Yes. And it's great people watching. I used to, my cheerleading squad in high school, we used to sell hot dogs at the races every year as fundraisers for our uniforms and like competitions and things like that. So we used to walk up and down the stands, the stairs, you know, selling hot dogs. So much fun. So Did much your fun. dad have a driver who was his, his guy? Let's see, early on, he was Dale, a Dale Earnhardt guy. Um, you know, Dale Earnhardt Sr. is the one I remember, which that must have been, you know, in my late middle school and high school years. I can't remember him ever talking about anybody else. And he has a picture. He was the Grand Marshal at Darlington. Wow. Years ago. Uh, and he has a picture of him with Dale Earnhardt and he was so excited. Uh, he was so excited to meet him. So I, that's, the, that's the person I remember my dad rooting for. And then I guess it became Jeff Gordon after that. Did you ever meet Dale? I was at that race where my dad was the Grand Marshal. So I think that I did in that moment, the same moment where my dad had the picture made, but I don't have uh, a memory of what that conversation was or, you know, I just remember after he passed away, just thinking, oh my gosh, like I, I just, I had just been sharing space with this person. And it's so strange that he's, he's no longer here. I remember having that thought because I was young. I don't watch it now. I, I know my husband worked with Martin Truex um, for a while, helped his foundation for a while. So I watched when he was winning just because I was like, oh, that's Martin. That's our guy. <laughs> that's our guy. He's so nice. I think they're pretty down to earth. Though. Yes. I well, mean, Sherry Pollux, you know, his um, his longtime girlfriend has been bravely battling ovarian cancer for wow. many years for I think she's I think seven years now, seven or eight years. And that's how I lost my mother was from ovarian cancer. And that's how I connected with uh, with Sherry. And so she and I have remained really, really close friends because of that common battle, you know, that yeah. common that common. And she's so lovely about how she has approached it with so much bravery but in the process also trying to help other women and help people live this you know kind of healthy life and think about battling something like cancer from a you know 360 degree perspective not just the medical community but also through like food and holistic medicines and it's just a really cool approach that she's taken and then martin has a foundation that is all about childhood cancer and it's just such a cool couple they're just they're just good people i honor you for doing that kind of work because, you know, I mean, a lot of us have, like, we don't go out and say, oh, well, maybe I'll help little puppies or maybe mm -hmm. I'll, you know, a lot of times these things come to us, yeah. like they come at us, they attack our families yeah. directly, and we can choose whether or not to become public about, you know, yeah. making that a cause. Yeah. You know, I was in a very public job when, when I lost my mom and so I kind of had to, to make it public. I was in the grief process and in the process of losing her while I was first doing a national show and then when I took the position here at WCNC. And so I just decided that it was just to be raw about it, you know, just to be really honest and, and let all of the emotions <laughs> just live. 
because I, I think when you try not to, when you try to push everything down, I think it ends up exploding in another way, you know, it ends up crumbling in another, you, it breaks you at some point. And people are curious because they feel, you know, especially if you do something like the news, if you're a news anchor, people turn on their TVs and let you into their homes every night. And so they feel like they have a relationship with you. You know, they, they feel like they know you even, and they, they want to be a part of it. You know, they want to grieve with you or to know, you know, I was off the air for about six weeks because I took care of my mother in her final six weeks of life. And, and people wanted to know where I was and why. And so, you know, we made a point to, on the, on the show to talk about where I was and why I was there. I cut my hair off and had a wig made out of my hair for, her. you know, just did really public things to let people come in on it, especially if other people were dealing with that kind of thing. Um, have there been times in which you have said, boundaries, people? <laughs> no, you know, I have always been, uh, I'm always surprised when people, if people recognize me, it always, and I, I turn red really easily, so I always get embarrassed because I'm never expecting to get recognized, and I, I always start like sweating and it gets awkward and I say weird things or something, you know, because I'm just so shocked that somebody has come up to me. Or, you know, it might be that they say, hey, Beth, and then I'm thinking, do I know this person and should I know this person and what, what's their name? And so then I'm sitting there for the first few minutes trying to figure out who they are and then I realize that it's just someone who um, had seen a, a show that I was on or something. I've always been really uh, grateful for that kind of thing, you know, that people would take the time to come up and say hi or to want to take a picture or I just always thought that was just a really lovely, sweet thing in my face. If anybody is listening to this right now and they have seen me, they'll they'll tell you, yes, oh wow, her face turned blood red. <laughs> she gets so <laughs> embarrassed so easily because oddly for what I have done in my career, I am an introvert and I don't like attention. So when attention comes my way that I'm not expecting, I get very embarrassed. It's so strange. For purposes of just of understanding you, what should I know about your mother? What of your mother informs you? Oh my gosh. This might be a long answer. So much of my mother informs me. First off, my mother was hilariously funny. I mean, just such a funny woman, loved to laugh and laughed the hardest if you were making fun of her. So she taught me really early on to really learn to laugh at myself. And so I'm much like her. If you make fun of me, I will laugh probably harder than, than anybody else. Um, I also genetically got this thing from her where we, if we laugh too hard, we might tinkle on ourselves a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> that happens. And then you can laugh more. And then we laugh more. My nickname was Puddles in high school. And oh I'm not God. embarrassed to say it. Oh, my God. <laughs> she grew up in this area. My whole family is from this area. My mom grew up in Matthews. My dad grew up in Concord. And I think she always grew up wanting to be uh, the cheerleader and wanting to be the, the beauty queen and wanting to be all of these things that she saw her friends doing. Uh, so when she had a daughter, she very much wanted me to be those things. You know, I think that's what we do as parents, right? We want for our children what we didn't have. So they started me, my parents started me off really early in the beauty pageant world which then informed me in a completely different way than it did her. I ended up kind of as a teenager in that world of, of you know, literally being judged by a panel of people for all of the things that aren't supposed to matter, right? You know, physical appearance, weight, how you're walking across a stage, you know, these, these very subjective things. Um, 
I developed a pretty serious eating disorder in my teens. Uh, but then when I went to Carolina, I ended up in a women's studies class by chance because I couldn't get the elective that I was trying to get. It was full, so I ended up in this class called Sex and Gender in Society. How did you survive the eating disorder? How did you, how were you able to heal? So it was through the, through getting a women's studies degree. It was that, that first day that I was in this gender studies class, I read a Gloria Steinem article called If Men Could Menstruate, and I thought it was awesome. And then I started reading, um, you know, the beauty myth and um, toward a feminist theory of the state. And I was suddenly getting this language to articulate what had been going on inside of me, the, the, the things that felt wrong about the, the world that I had been living in that I just didn't know how to articulate because there was, I didn't have anybody around me that was using this language. And so suddenly I started journaling and I started trying to just be far more self-aware about where I thought these ideas of, of these standards of beauty and ideas were coming from and I knew that it wasn't from my own mind. I knew that I had been socialized uh, and then I started seeing it more on a broad scale. That's how I started healing. It was step by step just I guess in the way that I am kind of in a nerdy way just by reading and there was this book called Wasted by this young woman named Maria Hornbacher and it was her very honest battle with uh, anorexia and I read the book for a class and then suddenly I found out that she was coming to Carolina to speak and so I went to hear her and it just shattered everything that was in my head and it, it really helped me see how, how wrong I was, you know, in focusing any time and attention. And a lot of mine had to do with control because I had all these outward forces controlling me. You know, I, had, I was in, in weight training classes very early and people measuring my thighs and, and, you know, getting a score based on how I walked around in a swimsuit starting around the age of 15, which when you really think about that is, it, you're, you're not even fully developed yet. So it was really through books and through teachers and through changing my perspective that it, uh, that it helped me and that, that's how I got over it on, on my own. Uh, so that part of my, of my childhood and my, and my mother informed me in a very different way than it informed her. But the most um, remarkable thing that, uh, and I'm, I might get a little choked up here, I, you know, I took six weeks off of um, the anchor desk to care for my mother in her final six weeks of life. So I, she wanted to pass it home and I wanted to make that possible for her. So I moved into the house and was her 24-hour caretaker and as, oh, as brutal and um, difficult as it is to go through something like that with someone you love so much, we also got to have all of these really meaningful conversations and, and just have this time together. But about six days before she passed away, uh, it was the last day that she was really out of bed and she was lucid um, and she was on the sofa and I was rubbing lotion on her feet, which was like her favorite thing. And I told the story about the beauty pageants and, the, and this kind of world of superficiality to then tell you about this part of my mother. Uh, she was looking around her living room, which was always beautiful and always clean and spotless. And she said, you know, Beth, I was really stressed out about getting you curtains for this living room. And I did just what you did. I giggled about it because I was like, ah, oh, it's such a my mom thing to say. And then she said, no, Beth, I want you to look at me. And I looked at her and she said, all of this stuff, it is all junk. The only thing that you take with you is love. And it was 
this beautiful moment of my mom's soul, just who she really was once she was able to let go of the trappings of the physical world, you know, all of the pressures that we all feel to be beautiful or to be rich or famous or have the right car, have the right clothes. And she, in that moment, um, I think knowing all of the struggles that I had had um, in, in my young life and then, you know, who I was really wanting to be in the world, it was this moment where she was giving me this gift of just saying, go and be, almost giving me permission to, to be who I really wanted to be in the world and to say, you know, you don't have to live up to everybody's expectations anymore. Just go and be. And that is truly, I think, who my mother really was, just this loving, funny, just effusively, giving person and you know her her memorial service I think was a testament to that because so many people that I didn't even know you know showed up and said oh that she had done something lovely for them or had made them laugh or had told them a great story and I'm insanely grateful for everything that that she is and was because it informed me in such important ways I got to thank her even for all of the the crazy beauty pageant stuff because otherwise I wouldn't have become I think as self-aware and I hope it's a part of what helped me become really empathetic as well so and then it came full circle you know as she left the world she just her heart that's and that's who she ultimately was you know we get lost in this maze of trying to be successful and we forget that really what we're here for is each other I got to learn that at 39 and I think she didn't really really get it until she was almost leaving what a huge gift right I mean it's just I think about it every single day every time something silly takes over me takes over my obsessive thoughts or I think back to that like if the car breaks down, yeah. or, you know. Or if I get scuff my shoes, or if my purse doesn't match my pants, or whatever your purse is supposed to. I don't even know what your purse is supposed to match these days, but <laughs> you know the things that I was just on a, a girls' trip two weeks ago for one of my best friends from college, one of her birthdays, and we all went out to dinner one night. And everybody was super dressed up in these lovely dresses, and I didn't bring any dresses. We were going to the beach. I like had on my tank top and jeans and I came out and we all took this picture and I was like, well, one of these things is not like the other. And I think they were thinking I was really uncomfortable about it. But, it, you know, it's that it's that whole idea. It, it doesn't matter. I'm with these people that I love. It doesn't matter if I'm in a dress or or not. You know, it, it was just it was love. It was all the people. It wasn't the outfit. Comparison is the thief of joy and all the there's there's a lot of classism, you know, there's a really old book called Class and Caste in a Southern Town. And as much as there's class and caste in New York City or amongst the Boston Blue Bloods, in the South there's a very keen sense of who are your people, where do you come from, what's your name, how big's your house, how much land do you own, that kind yeah. of thing. When you see someone die, it 
it eradicates all of that. It, it just it just wipes it out. It's the great leveler. Yeah, because we're, we're all headed that to that exit door. We're all headed out the exact same way. The method is might be different, but we're going out that same door. And it's such a strange thing that we create all of these systems that make life far more complicated than it needs to be. Do you also feel like my parents were incredibly brave, I mm. think, because they knew what was coming. And the hardest part was the dying. It was not death. Right. The hardest part was the dying because that's where the suffering was. And they overtly looked forward to the death. Did you ever feel in that times like, my mom has kind of made it easier, like the pressure's off, like I've seen a template for how to do that. So no matter what comes to me, I see that I can do it because I've witnessed my own people do that. Right. Yeah, I, I my uh, husband, who is just a remarkable, kind, lovely human, um, really put it into perspective because I was struggling uh, after her passing because I did see so much suffering and I, 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 I went through uh, so much of it with her as he was watching me struggle with what I, I think was probably PTSD in a way, uh, he said, you know, Beth, really think about this. Think about the 68 years that she was on the planet and how healthy and fun she was and how much she did and how strong and powerful she was. And ultimately, even though she battled ovarian cancer for uh, five years, she was amazing during, you know, four years and 11 and a half months of it where you would never even know that she had cancer. And he said in the, the the course of the 68-year life, like that six-week period was such a small period of time in that 68-year life. So the suffering wasn't as long as it probably feels to you right now. Like She had this beautiful life, and that was a very quick, it did not feel quick in that six-week period, but it was ultimately, you know, a, not a lot of suffering. It was finite. Finite, yeah. So and it gave me some perspective on what it might be like for me. And yeah. it did and did not define her. I mean, At her all. courage yeah. in that is one of her defining characteristics, but... Cancer didn't define her. Correct. Right. When you graduated college, how did you decide what to do with that degree from... Chapel Hill. In my senior year, I did a project on images of women in media and how those images affect self-esteem. Very on brand, you know, with where my head was and I was going to change the world at 22. And so I thought after I did this project, I was like, oh, well, if I'm going to change the world, I need to change Hollywood. Like that's going to be the place to do it. And in my last semester at Carolina, the West Wing launched. It had its first season. And I started watching it and I thought it was brilliant. I, you know, Allison Janney was such a cool character and she was smart and she wasn't, you know, this classic beauty. She was this very interesting looking woman and Stockard Channing as the first lady and just I thought the writing of these powerful female characters. I was like, all right, if I'm gonna change Hollywood, I need to learn from these guys. Like they're super smart. And I remember watching the season finale, you know, the who's been hit, who's been hit after the, the assassination attempt having no idea that I was going to be reading the script of who has been hit um, a month and a half later, but I got my degree and I packed up a U-Haul 
and I drove to LA and it didn't actually occur to me to apply for the job at the West Wing until I got there. <laughs> like, I mean, I had thought that's where I'm going to go and I'm going to work for that show, but I didn't apply beforehand. And I think maybe if I had, I, I might not have moved. I, I don't know. But I got to LA and I checked into the Hollywood Ramada and I bought a fax machine at Staples and NBC at the time had an automated menu and you could get the numbers for the production offices of the NBC shows. And I got the production office number for the West Wing and I called and I said, hey, I really wanna work for your show. Are you guys looking for production assistance? And the, the young man who I later learned was an intern happened to say, yes, I think they are hiring. Fax your resume to this person and here's the number. And I faxed my resume and the woman who was hiring happened to be standing at the fax machine when my resume came through. And she noticed my resume. A, she told me later because I had no grammatical errors in my cover letter. So yay, Carolina. And that was how I decided to use my women's studies degree. I also had a degree in political science. So the West Wing job fit really well with that. And are I you a working. kismet person? Are you a synchronicity person? Are you a fate person? Are you a God's will person? Are you a, I did it. I forced my will on the universe. Where are you on the woman <laughs> standing beside the machine? Oh, so for a really long time, I was the never have a plan B because you'll use it person. And because I didn't have a plan B, it just worked is where I, where I landed. But I think there's a level of fate to it. You know, there's a level of uh, some kind of destiny there. I, I, you know, I don't know. I grew up in church, so I certainly believe that God has a hand in, in things. Um, I don't know if he necessarily cared or not whether I worked for a TV show, but <laughs> you know, I think that it was something super lucky about that because I later learned that people go to LA and the city eats them up. And you know, I had been there for six days when I got an interview at the West Wing and three days later I got a job on that show. So I was only there for you know less than two weeks, I guess, <laughs> before I started working. Well, I don't know if it's so much a particular movie or TV show or whatever, as it is, I'm supposed to be with these people to learn these lessons and I think this I was, kind of a thing that, and these crazy ass coincidences occur that are just astronomically impossible. I've often wondered who does logistics for God because that <laughs> must be like the worst job to make all of this stuff work out for all of these billions of people. There were definitely people I was supposed to meet and things I was supposed to learn. Um, absolutely. Like who or well, what? Everybody what? that, uh, Aaron Sorkin uh, for one, who was the creator writer of the, of the show. Um, learning from a mind like that and then the boss that I, I, after my first season, I was a production assistant, and then I started working for uh, one of the producer directors. And because I was his right-hand man, I was Who was that? Alex Graves. Yeah. He was well, I've listened to West Wing Weekly again and again and again, oh, okay. and I, I develop a whole new, that, that was one hell of a podcast. Yes. Just one hell of a podcast. Yes. They, oh. And that Josh show, Molina is such a cool dude. I mean, you can rack up any given episode of that show and it was just relevant. Mm -hmm. And that was always by chance. I mean, 
sometimes we would rec we'd film an episode and before it ever aired on NBC, something would happen that made the episode more relevant. So people started saying like, does he have a crystal ball? Does Aaron know what, what's coming? It, it just would be and by And even chance. him saying that uh, Matt Santos was basically based on Obama, that it was, you know, this was a, this was a Latino version of mm -hmm a black man running for president. And they just, uh, that whole staff, the, it was, uh, that was probably a kismet thing to, because we all have kept in touch. I was just at a, a wedding right before COVID uh, hit for a young woman who was our assistant coordinator and her now husband was one of our assistant directors and a couple of the other assistant directors were there and some of the producers, one of the actors. And as soon as we saw each other, we were all like, we've never had another experience that's been this amazing. Because just the whole group, the cast, the crew, just the whole group. It was just such a beautifully like fit together group of people. And a Working bunch of those guys goal. did, there's a few good men Aaron, uh, on Broadway. Yes, and, but Aaron I mean, created But I mean, a, a bunch of men, the, yeah. and he created and a bunch of the guys did the, the roles. With Josh Molina, the, yes. like the trivia for and Josh. Bradley Whitford. Oh, and Bradley Whitford is so great. Like such a cool human. He actually, when I ran for Congress, he is the man who named my committee because when they found out that I was going to run for the U.S. House, I, I went down to the set the day that all of this happened and Bradley Whitford wrote a check for me for $1,500 and he made it out to Beth Troutman for Congress because that was how much it was going to cost for me to file and he knew that I was an assistant on a TV show and made absolutely no money so he basically named my committee because I had to open my committee so that I could cash the check. <laughs> and he's been very politically active. He's all so along. great. He's so great but Josh Molino up to the West Wing had pretty much been in everything that Aaron ever created ever wrote like that was his lucky charm can i just say josh molina mean i mean those practical jokes they're mean they're i mean and he's very much that guy like he's just funny and just fun and just energetic and i love to watch the little he and bradley whitford have like twitter battles you know online they're just it's just and it's so cool that they still have maintained and they're both crazy talented oh Crazy oh, every single person on that show was but, so talented. But Aaron Sorkin, out of this world, talented. Oh, and his mind is just quick. It's just quick. I mean, I was just thinking, we, you know, we just had the end of the 20-year anniversary of 9-11, and I worked for the West Wing when 9-11 happened, and I remember just... Where were you? I, it was early in the morning for us on the West Coast, so I was still in bed because the first plane hit uh, right before 6 o'clock in the morning. West Coast time, um, and my roommate came and, and woke me up, and I started like listening. We didn't go in and film that day, and then Aaron lost a friend uh, in one of the towers, and he immediately his mind went to work, and he created the the special episode Isaac and Ishmael, and you know we had that on the air by September the 26th. So we had he wrote and we shot and edited and had it on the air, you know, in just a matter of weeks. And I went back and watched it right before 9-11 just to, to see, you know, where his mind was. And he was already foreseeing how we were going to start talking about the uh, Islamic faith, you know, where people's minds were going to be. How he was trying to approach the idea of how easy it is to go down the, the racism rabbit hole with that episode. He was already thinking about all of these concepts because that's just who he was. So... 
for someone who is your age when you ran nowadays, because after 2016, record numbers of women filed and they ran for city council and they ran for county commissioner and they ran for school board. Mm -hmm. They did not just run for president of the United States. They said, we're needed in Raleigh. We're needed in Raleigh in record numbers, mm -hmm. you know, because that's where it's at. That's yeah. where that's where the battle is being fought. Well, Tip O'Neill said all politics is local politics. Absolutely, right? it's local. What would you tell? How old were you? When I was you 27 when I ran for the U.S. House, 2004. Oh my God! I was young, and I was running against Robin Hayes, who was uh, an incumbent and who was the sixth wealthiest member of Congress, who had previously run for governor in 1996, and I dated his son in high school. <laughs> Oh my God, was this all a vendetta? You know, Kirk Vonnegut said, all of life is high school. No. Cheerleaders, class presidents and all. That's, now we know the truth. It was, that it was all just to get back at, that at guy. the old man. At um, that guy. So That was my idealism at its, uh, at its finest. So what would you tell a 27 year old? I uh, would say, if you have the passion and the drive I say 100% go for it, and it is not going to be easy, and it will probably be one of the most difficult things that you do. Uh, my biggest piece of advice would be to stay true to yourself and your ideas, because there will be a lot of people who come in to tell you that you need to campaign a certain way, to speak a certain way, to speak in sound bites. You know, I had a lot of consultants who came in and scared me quite frankly and at, at 27 I thought maybe they knew better than I did because they had been working in the in industry quote unquote for all of these years and that they probably knew something that I didn't know and if I could go back and do it again I would have said all of the things that that I wanted to say and I would have shot the commercial that they told me wasn't a good commercial for my campaign. What was that? What would it have? I have a sense of humor and I like to make fun of myself and at the time there was a com there was a commercial out and I think it was for Hemis in a Ford truck or something and these two guys pulled up you know at a stoplight and they started talking to each other and like what's under your hood and the guy looks at him and says you bet to find out and he speeds off because it's a Hemi right so I wanted to do this commercial where two men pulled up in a truck at a stoplight and they rolled down their windows and they said who are you voting for for Congress and the guy looks at him and says you bet to find out and pulls off and you zoom in on a Beth Troutman for Congress bumper sticker that's funny. <laughs> right? And it's memorable. And instead, they had me like walking in front of a cow pasture, you know, saying like, I'm for jobs. And of course I was for jobs. Like all of the basic things that everybody who runs for office is for, pointless. The commercial was pointless, but I thought that maybe they knew better, you know, and here I was raising very, you know, as, as much money as I possibly could and didn't have a lot of money to spend on commercials. And I think that one would have been way cheaper, super memorable. <laughs> um, I'm not going to run down the list, but I've been in North Carolina for uh, more than a quarter century, 20 years of it at WREL and WCNC, and um, I've seen everyone from the mayor of Charlotte to um, the governor to the head of the Republican Party be to state lawmakers, members of Congress, former director of transportation be convicted of felonies. Yeah. Is there something about an entrenched like power base, no matter what the political party, that leads to the arrogance of the rules don't apply to me? I think there's a lot going on there. I think 
power corrupts, and I think you're absolutely right that it gets to the point where they think of oh, the rules don't apply to me. I think that especially this day and age, I think it takes a certain kind of person to run for office. You know, I think the, the best people in the world aren't necessarily the people who are choosing to throw their hats in the ring because of the way the system is now. All of the money that's required, you know, the, the PACs and the super PACs that are involved. But more than that, you put a R or a D by your name and suddenly 50% of the population stops paying attention to what you're saying and thinks that everything that you say is crazy. But then you have this new level of social media where people can say whatever they want about you and absolutely ruin your reputation. And you have all of these people who are worried about doing nothing but pulling you down, not building you up and trying to you know, dig and find every little piece of dirt that there is. And I think a lot of people who are really amazing human beings don't necessarily want their dirty, dirty laundry aired. And so you end up getting people who are maybe more arrogant than the normal, than the, 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 the average human who, who run because they- Craven is the word that goes to mind. Deal with the process, right? And then once they get the power, I think it just becomes, it just exacerbates those qualities. In the case of Jim Black, former Speaker of the House. I interned for him. Yeah, and yeah. I, I met him, right? and he offered to give my daughter an internship, and I, I never had it out with Jim Black. And also with Robin Hayes, they did not, their crimes were motivated not by money or women, or their crimes were motivated by power, the by power. the consolidation of power. They did not personally benefit. The satchel of money that I think Jim Black took in the bathroom of a of pancake, an of an IHOP. Yep. It wasn't for him. It right. was not for him. And right, with Robin Hayes with the insurance. It was because he wanted the power broker. You know, the, because, and Robin Hayes, he's taken cash to play games. He's taken cash to place, you know, to tip the scales in a damn insurance commissioner race. Mm -hmm. What the hell are you doing? And then got a pardon from President Trump right at the very end uh, so these people they they think that they can get away with it because they have and they do is that's the problem that's the problem you know and we we saw we see it on different levels it certainly happens in government but we, we saw it in 2008 you know we had an entire industry well he gets the crumble. pardon but his reputation is wrecked i wonder if i don't know if they believe that their reputation is wrecked or not you know i don't know what happens 10 years down the road, are memories that short these days? I think what happens is 50 years down the road, history is very harsh and there will be a reckoning. And I, I just hope there's a United States of America when it happens, but history is very harsh. Yeah. History is not going to be kind to this period of, of, of human history. I certainly know that 50 years from now. I think we're seeing more and more uh, people selling out on uh, on every level for, like you just said, I mean, corruption, it's, it's such a tricky game and it happens on so many levels. I think it grows into these huge issues that we've had because the more people get away with, the bigger, it, the more they try to get away with, you know, the more, I guess maybe the easier it becomes because once you cross a line 
and I think people realize this in their own lives, if you cross a line, then it's easier to cross it again. It's easier, you, it's easier if you move the line to then cross it again and to keep moving farther down. And I, I think corruption has everything to do with a lack of morality, a lack of a real sense of right and wrong, a lack of empathy and complete arrogance. Like all of those things I think feed this corrupt beast and we are all playing into it now because we are connected in such a strange way through social media and through the internet and now suddenly truth isn't truth anymore. People say that there are versions of the truth, there are alternative facts. What is, no one seems to know where the truth lies in, in information anymore. And so because of that, we're all playing into corruption. We're having other, you know, foreign entities and foreign governments feeding us information that then is playing into how we think about ourselves, our country, each other, and we're falling victim to it. As a country, we're falling victim to it and we're being divided by these power players who, you know, speak in sound bites and media organizations that are not necessarily media. They're instead, you know, mouthpieces for certain ways of thinking and so people aren't challenged to think in a different way to to think differently than to to have a different opinion or to even have an opposing conversation anymore and when you start lacking all of those things corruption is so easy to you can be a corrupt politician you can be a corrupt leader because you have everybody down here fighting about ridiculous issues or or things that are hot button issues or emotional issues while everybody is up at the top just I, not quite doing the right thing. I just got into it with a person who I love dearly. I said, who do you think cheers when you and I are at each other's throats right. over this? I said, it is our enemies. Right. And, and I said... We've I, lost our humanity in this. I, have you not heard the word agitprop? You know, it's agitation propaganda. It's designed to get you spun up. Mm-hmm. Like the whole purpose is to get you spun up. And, and politicians and their consultants know these things now and they know what issues will get people spinning and they know what it will get them to the polls. And it's not necessarily healthy for conversations that need to be happening at dinner tables and in town squares and between people. I always ask the question, you know, even during this pandemic, um, I always ask the question, what would Jesus do? You know, when I hear people debating masks, whether or not to wear masks, I think about Jesus, this human son of God who was willing to hang on a cross with a crown of thorns in order to help us, to save us from ourselves. Like, I don't think he'd have a problem with a little mask, you know, just to save his fellow man or to to help keep his fellow man. What he said about government was render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, you know, and render unto God what is God's. And that didn't mean give it to the Pharisees. That meant if the tax man says the tax is his, it's just money. He's not asking your allegiance. Right. It's just money. It's not going to last anyway. And I, I, it's my job, I think, to, to make sure that my fellow man is taken care of. I think that that's my job on this planet. And 
it doesn't seem to be the way that people are thinking about, especially this, um, especially this pandemic. We're not, we're not thinking about each other enough, I think sometimes. So how do you take Beth time and protect your mental health in a time where the, the world's going crazy? <laughs> I mean, how do, how do you still keep a smile? How do you still? I am um, an avid reader. So anytime I can sit in my favorite comfy chair and plop on my glasses and read a book, that's definitely Beth time. But I am very, very lucky because I live here where my family is and I'm very close to my brothers and my nephews and my niece. And my family's really funny and really loud and uh, I get to spend time with them and, and it makes me smile. My husband is a lovely, thoughtful person who spends his time trying to help people when there's a disaster or you know help people get vaccinated if they need to be vaccinated and I get that's who I'm surrounded by the majority of the time especially during the pandemic I was stuck in the house with just my husband and my two dogs you know and it was because we didn't have to either of us uh, we neither one of us got COVID no one in my immediate family um, got COVID. My grandmother ended up getting it at 92, but she's, she is doing okay. But we had this lovely like experience, my husband and I together in, in quarantine, you know, where we were in sweatpants and I learned how to bake bread like everybody else and started baking cakes. And we, I feed off of the people that I have um, surrounded myself with and that I've been fortunate enough to, that I was born with, born into. Um, so that's how I keep a smile is I have really, really cool people around me in my, in my little circle, my little circle of people. Are you enjoying what you're doing now? I mean, you're doing the BT shifts, you're doing what, what all you're doing? You know, I never, I never imagined radio actually, but it's, it's been fun because A, it's not scripted. B, I don't have to fix my hair, which I love, and I don't have to wear makeup, which I also love. It's been interesting. You know, I, COVID brought the work that I was doing uh, post my anchor job to a halt because I was traveling to shoot documentaries. I actually got back from Pakistan right before the world shut down. And I spent the time during COVID um, going through the edit process of that Pakistan documentary and writing it and just kind of taking my time with it. And the idea was it was supposed to be the, the pilot episode of a documentary series that was going to be shot in different countries all over the world. And I still can't do it at this point. Um, so it kind of brought the, the kind of work I was moving toward it brought it all to a halt and um, I thought things were changing this summer and that's when we started going to the networks like Netflix and Amazon with the pilot episode and uh, then the Delta variant came around and, and traveling to all of the places that we needed to travel and to be able to shoot um, became something that was kind of impossible and so I just in the last kind of two months, I've been battling the heartbreak of that, of, of where I wanted the work I was doing to go, um, because the, the work that I was trying to do was to help promote this idea that we're all the same, that we're all human. It doesn't matter if we live in Pakistan or Romania or Rwanda, that we all are human trying to get through this experience that is life. To not be able to do that work right now and then to be kind of held back from doing it by what's currently going on has been really difficult um, just from a human perspective to, to be a witness to the division and the hatred and the vitriol uh, after being kind of in this place where 
the work that I was doing was trying to be filled with so much love and kindness and to, to see those two things juxtaposed against each other and then to it's been heart it's been heartbreaking so right now everything is shifting I'm kind of in this new phase of what does what does act two look like because it's not quite looking the way that I thought it was going to look and it's you know because we're in a global pandemic and I think that that's probably what a lot of people have been going through is like what does this next phase look like so everything has actually shifted and I'm now for the first time starting to to recreate yet again like <laughs> just try to redo it again and 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 see what I think might be interesting and doable in this current period in history I'm repressing a little jealousy that it seems like your mission comes to you like you don't have to like it becomes there's such a clarity in you about these things come to you that oh this is what I'm supposed to do oh well, you're 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 sweet to say that I don't know that it feels that way to to me I I think everything has felt um, like a, a bit of a struggle everything has felt complicated and um, and filled with really difficult decisions um, you know, just the, even the decision of, um, of leaving WCNC back in 2017, everyone around me told me that I was absolutely crazy, you know, that people work their entire lives to be um, an anchor, and, and especially an anchor in my hometown. You know, I was not at all looking the gift horse um, in the mouth. I was just, I was grieving, and I was going through all of these things that I learned from my mother's death and from my last conversations with my mother and then trying to see how I wanted to shift that into what kind of legacy I wanted to leave. What did I, what would, what kind of force did I really want to be in the world? And so all of that just to, you know, in the process felt like such a heartbreaking struggle because I, I never wanted to make anyone angry or make anyone feel like I was um, leaving them high and dry or I never wanted people to feel like I thought that I deserved more because those were never anything that never ever entered my brain for me it was more about how do I not crumble how do, how do I not break how can I be true to this voice that's in my head that's telling me I, I need to use everything that I've learned to promote kindness and, and conversation and, and not promote fear um, how can I do these things? And at the time, it just didn't feel like being a news anchor was the best way for me to do it. You know, it just didn't work in my soul. It just didn't, it didn't work. So that felt like a huge struggle for me. So it's weird to think that it, it didn't just come. It felt, it felt like a, a really, really hard decision. <laughs> well, and the industry that we were in, I mean, it's, it feeds the ego, right? I mean, it, you, you are on television. Your voice is, is powerful. You're telling stories. You right. are, you know, all of those things are, are happening. So it's hard to, it's hard to keep your ego at bay. You know, it's, it's very difficult for those things to, for the soul and the ego to, to co-exist. You know, I, I just dealt with that um, issue with somebody within the industry, the, their ego just is getting in the way of what could be really, really great work. Uh, and, and to see those things happen, it is unbelievably heartbreaking. You are so lucky in that you got to have this new experience. I got banged on through loss and grief and knocked up against a lot of rocks. I always say to people, you know, just if there's a part of you that feels like jumping, jump. 
the parachute will open, I promise, but you're going to hit a bunch of rocks and like sticks and twigs along the way. And you just, you got them in a different way. And then you jumped, then you jumped and your parachute opened. I've you're, heard some spiritual people say leap and the net will appear. Yeah. And it does. It does. And it is terrifying because I've done it more than once. I have done it. I, I did it when I left the West Wing to run for Congress. I did it whenever I lost the congressional race and suddenly, you know, cold called. That's got to suck. It is not fun to lose. That's I will tell gotta, you it's not fun. It's like a prize fighter. You just <laughs> beat down. It's just like, oh. Uh, then you're exhausted uh, at the end of it too. And then you have to call your you know, opponent and, you know, tell them congratulations. The the thing that was the funniest about my end to my race, we had the big party where everybody had the Beth Troutman for Congress signs and we had barbecue and food and all the numbers started coming in. And at first I was actually winning because Mecklenburg County came in first and I won Mecklenburg County with 62% of the vote. But then the more rural counties, I was the first woman to ever run in District 8. So the more rural counties had a they were a little, I think maybe a little more nervous about the young female and they were far uh, more Republican counties. Anyway, I started losing. And they don't tell you, what they don't tell you is that when you start losing, people just leave. They don't stay, they're not still at the party. So when I got up to actually make my concession speech at the podium, I looked out and said, mom, dad, thanks for your support. Cause they were the only ones left. They were the only two people Literally sitting there. The only two? Literally, it was two o'clock in the morning. And I, I, my concession speech, I laughed and looked at my mom and dad and like, thanks for your support. Yes, that was the end of my congressional run. And then I leapt into a TV career, which I had no idea what I was doing really, and ended up hosting a morning show and then you know, leapt from that to a, a, a morning show for the Lifetime Network and then got called to do a pilot that led me back out west and helped launch a, a national TV show that we had no clue if it was going to be successful or not. So I moved all the way across the country again, not knowing if I was going to be employed for a month or three months or six months or six years. And it ended up being successful, which was amazing. And in all of that, my mother had cancer and I made a leap of faith again to leave a national show that I had launched, helped launch behind uh, to come back here to to be with her and randomly I did randomly get a phone call to be an anchor here which uh, here in Charlotte which was very kissman I guess or yeah. God yeah however yeah. you would say it well how would you say it I I would say that was God because the the most um, profound life changes that I've been through have been in the last five years and would only have been possible if I were here and here to be with my mother, here to walk away from a 20-year television career to go to Haiti, work at an orphanage and leap again, you know, here to, to try to really disconnect and, and untangle my soul from my ego and really become the human that I need to be. That uh, is a life's work. Yeah, that's Recognizing work. what is for this temporary, meat suit, this identification with the You're making body. me cry. You're like a Barbara Walters here. I'm getting all choked up. <laughs> Why? What is that? I, because that's going to go away. I think just the recognizing the, having another soul recognize the work, recognizing how tough it is and, and um, how necessary, you know, because 
sometimes when you take risks uh, to, to try to uh, live a, a life of meaning and purpose, you get a lot of pushback from people and you get a lot of, um, I don't know, maybe that's everyone else's fear maybe, maybe, maybe coming at you, but it's nice Projected. to see a, a soul's recognition of another soul. There's something about that that's making me tear up. I don't know what you're doing to me. <laughs> if we get struck by lightning right now and the only <laughs> thing that survives is this little piece of audio, what is your legacy? I hope that my legacy is that I was a, a human who helped people feel comfortable in their own skin, who helped people find meaning and purpose um, in their lives and helped people feel validated and loved and important. But kind of like the Maya you know, Angelou quote that you do the best you can until you know better and then when you know better you do better. And I've I hope that I'm not remembered for my mistakes and that for the, the, because all of those, those times that I made bad decisions or wasn't as kind as I could have been or did something wrong, those all helped me be a better human. And I, I hope that I, my legacy is that I've helped other people find grace in their lives for themselves and most importantly, grace for other people. You encourage me. <laughs> And, and inspire me. Thank you. Thank you for making time to do this. Oh, thank you. This has been a lovely conversation. I forgot, I think in the process of this, I forgot that I was wearing a microphone and that we were recording us. <laughs> so if we went round and round in circles, that's why. What a gift that you are providing by doing conversations with, with people, but what a gift. Women. To give Only your... women. Well, cool. Even better, <laughs> says the lady with the women's studies degree. But... Thanks, Beth. Thanks for your time. I think if you had to sum up Beth, you'd call her an activist in whatever she does. She is involved in making the world better, whether it's through making documentary films or appearing on television or whatever role she is doing or, you know, working in Pakistan or Haiti or wherever she is working or, you know, in the fight against cancer, ovarian cancer, etc. Thank you, Beth. I really honor you, and I, I appreciate your time. Man Listening is a production of Unmediated LLC in cooperation with the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp Miller are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins & Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. If you want exclusive member merch, like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. A huge shout out to everyone who has supported Man Listening from the very beginning, uh, in whatever way you did. You know, whether it's listening, you know, giving us a review or sending us a little bit of love through uh, Patreon. By love, I mean money. Thank you all so much. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Click the subscribe button and next week you'll hear. But it was that same faith that helped me 
pick up the pieces and know it's gonna be okay and put things back together. That's next week on Man Listening. Thanks.